Chapter Ten of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Queen Victoria by Giles Lytton Strachey. Chapter Ten. Chapter Ten, The End. The evening had been golden. But after all, the day was to close in cloud and tempest. Imperial needs, imperial ambitions involved the country in the South African War. There were checks, reverses, bloody disasters. For a moment the nation was shaken, and the public distresses were felt with intimate solicitude by the Queen. But her spirit was high, and neither her courage nor her confidence wavered for a moment. Throwing herself heart and soul into the struggle, she labored with redoubled vigor, interested herself in every detail of the hostilities, and sought by every means in her power to render service to the national cause. In April 1900, when she was in her 81st year, she made the extraordinary decision to abandon her annual visit to the south of France and to go instead to Ireland which had provided a particularly large number of recruits to the armies in the field. She stayed for three weeks in Dublin, driving through the streets in spite of the warnings of her advisers without an armed escort, and the visit was a complete success. But in the course of it she began, for the first time, to show signs of the fatigue of age. For the long strain and the unceasing anxiety brought by the war made themselves felt at last. Endowed by nature with a robust constitution, Victoria, though in periods of depression she had sometimes supposed herself an invalid, had in reality throughout her life enjoyed remarkably good health. In her old age she had suffered from a rheumatic stiffness of the joints which had necessitated the use of a stick and eventually a wheeled chair but no other ailments attacked her until in 1898 her eyesight began to be affected by incipient cataract. After that she found reading more and more difficult, though she could still sign her name, and even with some difficulty write letters. In the summer of 1900, however, more serious symptoms appeared. Her memory, in whose strength and precision she had so long prided herself, now sometimes deserted her. There was a tendency towards aphasia, and while no specific disease declared itself, by the autumn there were unmistakable signs of a general physical decay. Yet even in these last months the strain of iron held firm. The daily work continued. Nay, it actually increased, for the Queen, with an astonishing pertinacity, insisted upon communicating personally with an ever-growing multitude of men and women who had suffered through the war. By the end of the year, the last remains of her ebbing strength had almost deserted her, and through the early days of the opening century it was clear that her dwindling forces were only kept together by an effort of will. On January 14th, she had at Osborne an hour's interview with Lord Roberts, who had returned victorious from South Africa a few days before. She inquired with acute anxiety into all the details of the war. She appeared to sustain the exertion successfully, but when the audience was over, there was a collapse. 
on the following day her medical attendants recognized that her state was hopeless and yet for two days more the indomitable spirit fought on for two days more she discharged the duties of a queen of england but after that there was an end of working and then and not till then did the last optimism of those about her break down the brain was failing and life was gently slipping away her family gathered round her for a little more she lingered speechless and apparently insensible and on january twenty second nineteen o one she died when two days previously the news of the approaching end had been made public astonished grief had swept over the country it appeared as if some monstrous reversal of the course of nature was about to take place the vast majority of her subjects had never known a time when queen victoria had not been reigning over them she had become an indissoluble part of their whole scheme of things and that they were about to lose her appeared a scarcely possible thought she herself as she lay blind and silent seemed to those who watched her to be divested of all thinking to have glided already unawares into oblivion yet perhaps in the secret chambers of consciousness she had her thoughts too perhaps her fading mind called up once more the shadows of the past to float before it and retraced for the last time the vanished visions of that long history passing back and back through the cloud of years to older and ever older memories to the spring woods at osborne so full of primroses for lord beaconsfield to lord palmerston's queer clothes and high demeanour and albert's face under the green lamp and albert's first stag at balmoral and albert in his blue and silver uniform and the baron coming in through a doorway and lord m dreaming at windsor with the rooks cawing in the elm trees and the archbishop of canterbury on his knees in the dawn and the old king's turkey-cock ejaculations and uncle leopold's soft voice at claremont and Leitzen with the globes and her mother's feathers sweeping down towards her and a great old repeater watch of her father's in its tortoise-shell case and a yellow rug and some friendly flounces of sprigged muslin and the trees and the grass at kensington end of chapter ten end of queen victoria by giles lytton strachey